Hello and welcome. I'm Eric. And I'm John. And this is the Wikipedia Chronicles. where we start with a random article, explore it, then follow the links, and see where it takes us. John, what is your starting article today? Uh, my starting article today, Eric, is... Kevinbrin? Hmm. Um, it's a ridge in Britain. That's, it's not a town. <laughs> it's not a mountain. We'll slope upwards, we'll <laughs> slope downwards, and then that's that's the whole thing. Huh. Yep. Interesting. S- that's that's what I have. <laughs> um, there is one thing though. Here, there's a stone. It's called Arthur's Stone. And before you get all Camelot and excited, not that one. Uh, uh, the legend from this one is that. Uh, King Arthur threw a stone from something else called Lanelli, hmm. and it landed there. Now, if Lanelli is like across England, I'm going to have some reservations about that, but uh, it does seem like this is not the sword of legend from which there was a sword pulled, but rather an entirely different stone <laughs> that King Arthur just kind of shot put to I here. See. Yeah. Um... There are a couple other things going on with that, too, but that's kind of like the, you know, um, notable thing. Uh, Eric, do you have anything that is not a ridge? I do. <laughs> okay, that's a start. <laughs> Climbing mountains. I have Tor Svenberg. Is that a place or a person, I suppose? Is it is a person. Okay. He was born Olaf Theodor Svenberg. Uh-huh. He is a Swedish actor. And theater director, whose career spanned more than five decades. Um, he died in 1941, so this is a long time ago. Um, he, let's see, is there any notable works here? He's in his, a movie called Sons of Ingmar, The Monastery of Sandomir. The Phantom Carriage, Ocean Breakers, and A Woman's Face. And, hmm. yeah. Okay. So we have... We have an actor. Or we have a ridge. Yep. I think, uh... That speaks for itself. <laughs> Does it? Sure. <laughs> uh, I mean, the actor isn't terribly interesting, but he's, his competition, fortunately for him, is a ridge. That's true. So, and this actor um, does kind of look like Graham Chapman. Which is interesting. <laughs> Graham Chapman with a 
poofy hair and a mustache. Ah, so Graham Chapman. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. Let's 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 go to him. All right. Uh, tour, as in like the word tour, like you tore your jeans. And Svenberg. S V E N N B E R G. Gotcha. And there he is. He really does look like he could have been the dad of Graham Chapman. Yep. For real. And or Milton Hershey. Not sure. <laughs> uh, he uh, was born in Stockholm. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was, made his stage debut at the Falcon Theater in ni- 1877. And um, he kind of had a working relationship with director Albert Ramft. And he played in several August Strindberg dramas. Gustav Vasa um, starred in Eric the 14th, A Dream Play, and The Dance of Death. Hmm. He also appeared in many roles by Henrik Ibsen. And he played in The Doll- A Doll's House, The Wild Duck, and John Gabriel Borkman, which is interesting. And he was engaged at the Swedish Royal Dramatic Theater. And I guess by engaged, they mean employed. And he later became director from 1922 to 1928. And he managed to attract audiences by focusing on classics and foreign plays. Hmm. And then he went on to appear in a number of films, like The Sons of Ingmar, directed by Victor Sjostrom, um, which was based on the novel Jerusalem by Selma Lagerlof. And then he performed his last film role at the age of 82 in Pearl Lindbergh's 1940 drama Stahl. And he is probably best recalled for his role in the 1938 film A Woman's Face playing opposite Ingrid Bergman I'm telling you those those Swedes they're some long living actors unless you're Ingrid Bergman but uh (laughs) everybody else you know you got your Max von Sydow's you got your Tor Svenberg's acting well into their 80s it's impressive stuff yeah you don't hear of too many actors well into their 80s. Nope. I mean, you do have a few. You have your Christopher Lee's, your mm-hmm. oddballs. You get way up there and are still acting. But it's hard to do. I think it's a matter of, like, yeah. you have to not just live. You have to be able to see scripts, read yeah. scripts, Comprehend move, them still. Comprehend <laughs> them, remember them, memorize them. Well, not necessarily. I mean, if you're Marlon Brando, you can just tell people to tape it to somebody's chest and read Marlon from the... Brando did not make it to 80. <laughs> I want to make that a Okay, that's, that's true. <laughs> he was well off uh, the train by... He was off the train by, like... Actually, never mind. Marlon Brando made it to exactly 80. <laughs> <laughs> was he still acting by then? Or how um, did he, when did he retire? Define acting. After a point, they just cast Marlon Brando and said, here, be in this movie. And he was. You gotta wonder why. Like, at at some point, like, if you're a director, he's not really gonna be cheap. 
No. And so. he's going to be difficult. Exactly. He's not really going to put in a great performance not even in his old age. Uh, I don't know. Got to wonder. Do they just want the... Even the name well, recognition, not necessarily, was a his, big thing by the end. His last film was uh, The Score, uh, which was uh, directed by Frank Oz, actually. I actually have that movie. It's It's pretty good. Yeah, yeah, that was the last one he was in. Uh, Edward Norton was in it. De Niro's in it. Like there are some decent, there's some decent talent going mm-hmm. on behind this, but you know. But it's not a classic by any means. But. No, it's just kind of a film. It's not even one of Frank Oz's yeah. best films. Yeah. <laughs> Regardless, uh, yeah. From here, there are, you know, a lot of. Um, Swedish things to explore mm-hmm. as far as I'm not really sure um, plays directors though. plays theaters uh, theaters yeah. and Ingrid Bergman if That's we want to kind of like jump a shark and like just go right into film that we know but mm-hmm. it might be more interesting to learn about stuff that we because I mean like we could just go Ingrid Bergman Casablanca okay cool yeah. <laughs> like done but <laughs> Yeah, it might be interesting to check out some of this other stuff. Yeah. Um, like, maybe even one of his films from the selected filmography, because, I mean, Ocean Breakers sounds like it came out, like, five, ten years ago. Yeah. That sounds like something that might have been rebooted. And A Woman's Face just, I don't know, it's a strange title. Could be a horror movie. Okay, how about, <laughs> let's, go to, let's go to A Woman's Face. Okay. Because for some reason that sounds familiar to me, and I don't know why. I don't think it should sound familiar, but I mean we'll see. <laughs> um, and then we keep the option open of Ingrid Bergman if we do in fact get tired of <laughs> exploring halfway through this article. Uh, we might because this is two paragraphs long. Uh, a woman's face, 1938, a Swedish drama directed by Gustav Molander, based on the play. Il était une fois by Francis de Croisset. Uh, the cast includes Ingrid Bergman as the lead character, as a woman criminal with a disfigured face. Which, from the poster, you, you can't tell that. It yeah. looks like she has like a half of a face that follows her around. But like, uh, maybe she's like, I don't know, has like a ghost that's like coming out of her face. Or maybe the, she has like a ghost self that's following. Yeah, <laughs> something like that. Either, I mean, it's either that or just beauty standards in 19, 1930s Sweden were off the chain. <laughs> like they were just completely stupid. Because it's just like it, the poster just shows Ingrid Bergman's face. Like that's it. Yeah, like it's just both, her normal like, face. Two copies of her face. Two copies of her normal face. Yeah. <laughs> Not disfigured as far as I know. Uh, the film was awarded a special recommendation at the 1938 Venice Film Festival for its overall artistic contribution. Very vague, very <laughs> vague praise for this movie. Man. It was remade, but in 1941, uh. Uh, with the same st- title, starring Joan Crawford. Oh, which interesting. Is, which is weird, because I was pretty sure Ingrid Bergman was like, you know, could have done that. Yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like at that time she was probably a pretty big star. Maybe she just 
was like in the film the first time and she was like, that nah, was a bad movie. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Didn't want to be in the remake, more like. Mm. <sighs> okay, well. And that's the article. Yep. We could have a fun time stumbling through <laughs> Swedish names. Um, yeah, we could go to the director, Gustav Molander. His name keeps popping up, doesn't it? It's a very interesting name, that's for sure. Gustav Molander. Yeah, let's go Let's go see what he's about. Let's go check him out. Check him out. Oh, he was... Ooh. Oh. Hmm. Okay, so... Born Gustav Harold August Molander. Born 1888, died in 1973. Obviously Swedish actor and film director. His brother was director Olaf Molander. And uh, there's a lot of Molander descendants. So if there's a Molander in film, you can bet it's somebody in his family. He was born in Helsinki, Finland. And his father was working at the Swedish theater. He studied at the Royal Dramatic Theater in Stockholm from 1907 to 1909, and then acted at the Swedish Theater in Helsinki in 1909 to 1913, then at the Royal Dramatic Theater from 1913 to 1926. So he was an actor turned director. Hmm. And he wrote several screenplays for Victor Sjöström and Moritz Stiller and was helped by the latter to get employment as a director for Svenks Film Industry, <laughs> where he worked 1923 to 1956. I love the European tradition of ending words that would normally be ended with a Y with an I instead. <laughs> Mason looks so much more cute. <laughs> I don't know. And just film industry. it all in one word. Yeah. Film like industry. Film, in- film industry. <laughs> film industry. <laughs> but he actually directed 62 films. It's a lot of films. Yeah. Um, often worked with Gosta Ekman. And his films include Intermezzo, which became Ingrid Bergman's breakthrough and paved her way to America. That was in 1936. And then, uh, well, she actually starred in the Hollywood remake of that film. So there you go. Okay. <laughs> so she deemed that one good enough. That one was to fine. To in the remake. Yeah. But maybe she was like, I don't want to get typecast as like the does her own remakes. <laughs> <the girl." laughs> does her own remakes in two different languages. <laughs> I don't want to be on that boat. I, I can understand. I can understand why she would have gotten away from that. That, that would be sense. a strange thing to be typecast as. Wouldn't it? Every movie you do, you do twice. Yeah, that would be. I feel like there are actors that have done that, mm. but I can't think of anybody notable. Maybe that's exactly why they haven't. Um, <laughs> so, a couple of interesting titles of movies here, uh, none of which really stand out to me personally. His last film was Stimulantia in 1967. Um, others include Ava in 1948, Night or Never in 1941, Ride Tonight in 1942, One, But a Lion in 1940, and uh, Dollar in 1938. So... 
couple of uh, a lot of movies here, but this is just the selected filmography, and obviously doesn't give us a whole picture. But it doesn't seem like he really uh, broke through the Atlantic divide of, yeah. that kind of existed at the time. But there's a lot of that that happened. I mean, that's why the Criterion Collection is so cool to go through now, mm. because the film industries in America and Europe both developed at the same time but in very different ways without much right. overlap between the two unlike now where if there's a popular series in Britain or in America they swap and they go mm-hmm. back and forth across the Atlantic within a matter of years so definitely a different dynamic mm-hmm. um, interesting that his entire family is this was like a family business type thing back in the day there's still a few acting families now yeah. but not like not to this level no that's the level it was there aren't like these are, it seems like the lunts were like commonplace. Yeah. Like, like yeah, there were a lot of these really intensely theater families. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like back then, like when film was really getting going. Mm-hmm. It's like the you know dad was like into it, the mom was into it, and they yeah. kind of like were getting in on the ground floor, and then they were just like, hey, this is a new thing, kids, you gotta get into it. Or maybe it's just something we don't really observe that much because we're not in, like, the European scene. Mm. Because I feel like in America there was, Mm -hmm. like, the point where film was starting and then there was this point where, like, film became art that was removed from theater and it wasn't, like... It was its own animal for Mm. such a long time. And I feel like when people... I I think there were some directors who came from families that weren't supportive of them, you know? like People like that Mm -hmm. who... I don't know about this. <laughs> <laughs> I I just I just think it I I do think there is a disconnect between Europe and America in particular over this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I think the artistic families in Europe would have more than likely snowballed and continued to go into things just like yeah. his like, like Gustav. Let's take him as an example. His parents were were all theater people. He married a theater person. His daughter became a third theater person. Mm-hmm. Um, or, daughter and or son. I'm not sure which either. Anyway, point being, very much very much family thing. Speaking of them being family things, I look at the name Moritz Stiller yeah. and I wonder. <laughs> I, I mean I wonder too. Jerry I mean, Ben. I mean it's uh, not outside the realm of possibility. Do you think we could uh, maybe uh, you wanna, you wanna pop over there and see if um, yeah. might be a little, little related to uh, Ben Stiller. Okay, he looks like a more serious Jerry Stiller. Mm-hmm. A little bit. I don't know how old he was. Oh, he was almost dead. I, I, when the picture was taken. <laughs> uh, he was, 40, he was 44. He almost collapsed right after they took the picture. It took him six months to do it. It was a very slow motion collapse. He was a pioneer in the field of slow motion. Um, but in seriousness, uh, Moritz Stiller was a guy who was alive from 1883 to 1928. He was a Finnish Swedish film director, best known for discovering Greta Garbo and bringing her to America. Stiller had been a pioneer of the Swedish film industry, writing and directing many short films from 1912 onward. When MGM invited him to Hollywood as a director, he arrived with his new discovery, Greta Gustafsson, a.k.a. Greta Garbo, whose uh, screen name is believed to have come uh, at his suggestion. Uh, After frequent disagreements with studio executives at 
MGM, and Paramount, Stiller returned to Sweden, where he died soon afterwards. Hmm. You gotta love how so many of these like iconic American actresses are all like from overseas. Mm-hmm. They just came over and changed their name and there they were. <laughs> yeah, they're just not they're not American actresses at all. No. Nope. And they're not what they they're not their names at all, nope. even. Uh so this guy was born Moshi Stiller, uh, in Helsinki. Hmm. His family was of uh Ashkenazi that's uh, that's unfortunate. Oof, uh, yeah. Jewish heritage. Wow. The, the word Nazi being in your type of Jewish heritage. Yeah, that's very strange. That's real weird. <laughs> uh, having lived in Russia and Poland before settling in Finland, when he was four, his mother committed suicide. Yikes! After which he was raised by family friends. From early on, Stiller was interested in acting. His talents did not go unnoticed, and soon Stiller was offered the opportunity to practice and display his acting skills in the theaters of Helsinki and Turku in Finland. Drafted into the army of Tsar Nicholas II, Finland was at the time an autonomous Grand Duchy of Russia. Interestingly, uh, he responded with the dra- to the draft um, and by way of f- f- fleeing the country uh, and going into exile. And at that point, he settled in Sweden, and he became a Swedish citizen in 1921. Hmm. Well, so. By 1912, he had been involved with Sweden's uh, rapidly developing silent film industry, and soon he was writing his own scripts and acting and directing in short films, so he's like a Swedish uh, Charlie Chap. Yeah. And, uh, but within a few years, he gave up on acting and then just devoted his time to writing and directing, and uh, he was soon directing feature-length productions. And his 1918 effort, Thomas Growl's Bastabarn, or Thomas Growl's First Child, um, starring Karen Molander, who we hey. just uh, yeah, we came just, from. we know her. Uh, with Victor Sjolström. Man, that guy keeps popping up everywhere. Uh, in the leading role, uh, he received much acclaim for that film. And by 1920, he had directed more than 35 films. So, keep in mind, in 1918 is when uh, he directed this acclaimed one, and 1912 is when he very, like, pretty much started. So, at most eight years, he directed 35 films. In the silent film era, I tell you, like <laughs> they were pumping out stuff like no one's business. There was no concept. There was nothing. There was nothing known as take takes. Yeah. You got in there, you rehearsed it for a little while, you did things in one take. That's why. Yeah. There and was no pre. There didn't was have no to post. Have sound. So yeah, it's really it was, just a matter of making sure the picture looks good. Exactly. There was no post production. No, not. You just, I mean, there's kind of special effects every once in a while, but not might. mostly. Right, and you would cut in, like, cards for dialogue and stuff. But other than that, like, there's not that much in the way of editing. It's yeah, it's mostly stunts. Yeah. So it's like you just have a guy that's good at stunts, and you throw him in there and you say, yeah. hey, make sure that you get out of the way of the train. <laughs> like, don't actually get hit by the train. We just want to make it look. It's an illusion. Yeah. 
it's an illusion, but it's going to be really happening, so just jump out of the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's another thing. They didn't have uh, a lot of uh, rules and regulations and safety standards. This was very pre-code, wasn't so it? So yeah. they, they were able to get away with really uh, fudging the details there. Oh, yeah. So they, they really uh, pumped these things out. And uh, he was actually a leading figure in the Swedish filmmaking. And uh, he actually directed Sir Arnie's Treasure and Eroticon. And <laughs> he also directed The Blizzard, starring a young Einar Hansen, who I've never heard of. And that was based on the Selma Lagerlof novel Gunnar Hedis Saga. Lagerlof, that name comes up again. All these yeah. people are really running the same circle here. There's just one like. large theater community in Sweden, Finland, and <laughs> Norway, probably, too. Yeah. And they're all... Yeah. All, all, in, all in the same theater troupe, it seems like. Yeah. Wow, he does have quite a few movies. All right, so... <laughs> Let's see, one, two, three, four, five. movies in 1912 he made. Eleven movies in 1913. Jeez. And it kind of scaled That's back crazy. a little bit down to, looks like, eight movies in 1914. Probably another nine in 1915. This is like a movie a month, like... It's just insane. And again, they also probably didn't have to worry about scheduling. They just find an actor, just start shooting. Yep, I mean, there was, there was probably a lot. Again, the whole production must have been way, way easier. Yeah. I mean, harder, but easier to pull off quickly. Right. Hmm. Okay, well, unfortunately, the one thing we did come here for is not true. He's not the guy mm. who made the other Stillers. That's a shame. He looks very similar, which is... Yes, he does. <clears throat> you know, it was hopeful at first. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, hmm. Oh. Uh, yeah. he has been recognized with a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. For what? <laughs> For his <laughs> contribution to the motion picture industry. Ah. Okay. I was going to say, I was like, I don't know any of these. What did he do? He also has a monument in Christianstad, which I'm assuming is in Sweden somewhere. Sounds almost Russian, though, is the weird thing. (laughs) So originally, his star on the Walk of Fame was listed as Maurice Diller. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh. oh. It wasn't corrected until the late 1980s. <coughs> wow. What, how so did they just Diller? didn't even know his name. Hey, put uh, Maurice Diller on the uh, Hollywood Walk of Fame. Did you, All right. did you say, did you say <laughs> Morris Diller? Yeah, Moritz Diller. <laughs> no, no, no. That, that, not, not quite, but okay. <laughs> All right, so from here. Well, he also he died at the age of 45. Yeah, he was That's, not old. 
He just went back to Sweden to die. Very young. That was it. And he still directed that many movies. It's crazy. Well, he had pleurisy. What's pleurisy? Is that uh, one of those diseases we killed sometime in the early 1920s? Probably. <laughs> we were killing diseases left and right back then. You were. All right, well, we do have some interesting places to go from here. We do. Um, we could always go find out more about Greta. True. We wouldn't necessarily regret it. Uh, we have the Temptress. That's one that he's really well known for in Hollywood. Hmm. That's pretty temptressing. Um, we have various movie studios such as MGM or Paramount. And from like 1920 on, we can see pretty much anything he did. Yeah. And we can also check out Plurzy? Plurzy? Plurzy, yeah. Yeah, that weird disease, I guess, that he died of. Well, the question is, do we want to keep this within the realm of film or move off of film? Let's, let's change mediums. Okay, so that leaves us with Percy. <laughs> We're Tsar Nicholas II. Um, let's do Tsar Nicholas II. Because I feel like some interesting stuff mm. in Russia might have happened right around then. Get some history up in here. All right. Nicholas II. The better one. So, obviously, this is a Russian emperor. And he's, in fact, the last Russian emperor. Going from the 1st of November, 1894 until his forced abdication on the 15th of March, 1917. So, during his reign, uh, saw the fall of the Russian Empire from being one of the foremost great powers in the world to economic and military collapse. Things such as the Kodinka tragedy, anti-Semitic Pogrom, pogroms? Pogroms? <laughs> I have no idea what a pogrom is. Okay. Um, Bloody Sunday. Oh. The violent suppression of the 1905 revolution. The execution of political opponents and his perceived responsibility for the Russo-Japanese War. He was given the nickname Nicholas the Bloody by his political enemies. So all of these things uh, contributed to that nickname. Um, yep, he was mightily defeated at the in the Russo-Japanese War, and they lost a fleet. Oh, that's not good. Yeah. That's a lot of loss. <laughs> and they also lost a lot of influence over Manchuria and Korea. And in 1914, uh, Germany declared war on Russia because of uh, Nicholas approving Russian mobilization in 1914 and it is estimated that around 3.3 million Russians were killed in World War One. Ah, that's chump change just wait till you see what Stalin can do <laughs> um, 
Yep. And so it did not do so well. <clears throat> no, Nicholas too was pretty bad at the whole ruling thing. I can see why they forced him to stop. They were just like, you it know was what? about time. I think we got this. <laughs> no need for you to do anything else anymore. I think you're about done here. <laughs> This is looking a lot worse than when you started, so get out. Uh, so following the February Revolution of 1917, Nicholas abdicated on behalf of himself and his son, and he and his family were imprisoned, imprisoned rather, in the spring of 1918. Nicholas was handed over to the local Ural Soviet with the approval of Vladimir Ilyich Ulyanov Lenin, <laughs> Nicholas and his family were eventually executed by the Bolsheviks on the night of the 16th through the 17th of July, 1918. The recovered remains of the imperial family were finally reinterred in St. Petersburg in 1998. So wow. somebody took the remains <laughs> and kept track of them for multiple generations. Wow. His whole family executed. Mm -hmm. That's a pretty hefty punishment. Oh, that's brutal, all right. In 1981, Nicholas and his wife and their children were canonized as martyrs by the (laughs) Russian Orthodox Church outside Russia, located in New York City. I feel like that's a little... uh a little much. Yeah. I, I don't know if I would call them martyrs. They were deliberately executed for being really bad at what they did. And, and being super violent. <laughs> yeah. Like, that kind of that kind of thing. Like, it's not really being a martyr, is it? Because martyrs yeah. lay down and die. And they yeah, ordered 3.3 million people to die for a cause and kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But whatever. I mean, yeah, what I mean, want to do, I guess. Yeah. Um... On the 15th of August, 2000, Nicholas and his family were canonized as Passion Bearers. What? <laughs> uh, title commemorating believers who faced death in a Christ-like man. No! No! They were royalty! <laughs> Nothing like... <laughs> they, were like they were like the worst kind of royalty. They were, they were this, violent, this was like rich the, royalty. This is, this not... is like the guy who executed Christ. <laughs> like, yeah. This is like... This is freaking not, pilot stuff. This isn't. Yeah. Oh man. This is some. Caesar I don't know about stuff. this Ruff, <clears throat> Russian Orthodox Church. They don't seem to understand a few key key characteristics. Yeah. Of uh, the whole Christ thing. But hey, maybe they just didn't know a whole lot about anything regarding Nicholas II. Maybe Russia has a really different Bible. That <laughs> could be. Okay, so... Oh, wow. His name wasn't even Nicholas. Nope. He was born Alexander. Oh, no. He was born in Alexander Palace. Oh. I Never mind. Say. He was the eldest son of Emperor Alexander III and Empress Maria Fyodorovna of Russia, who was formerly Princess Dagmar of Denmark. Hmm. He had five younger siblings. Alexander, George, Xenia, Michael, and Olga. Nicholas often referred to his father nostalgically in letters after Alexander's death in 1894. He was also very close to his mother, as revealed in their published letters to each other. Interesting fact about the other 
younger siblings that uh, Nicholas had. Uh, Xenia and Olga both lived until 1960. So... The Bolshevik Revolution was not entirely successful in rounding up the entire royal family and killing them all. Um, actually, the fact that Xenia and Olga lived until 1960 kind of adds some credence to the movie Anastasia. <laughs> um, still not a lot, because that's really not historically accurate. Right. So, but nonetheless, <laughs> cool. Uh, his paternal grandparents were Emperor Alexander II and... Empress Maria Alexandrovna of Russia, who was born Princess Marie of Hesse and by Rhine. Uh, his maternal grandparents were King Christian IX and Queen Louise of Denmark. Nicholas was pr of primarily German and Danish descent, his last ethnically Russian ancestor being Peter the Great. So that was a long while back there. So, Nicholas was related to several monarchs in Europe. His mother's siblings included King Frederick VIII of Denmark and George I of Greece, as well as the United Kingdom's Queen Alexandra, consort of King Edward VII. Nicholas, his wife Alexandra, and Kaiser Wilhelm II of Germany were all first cousins of King George V of, United, of the United Kingdom. Hmm. Nicholas was also a first cousin of both King Hakon VII and Queen Maud of Norway, as well as King Constantine I of Greece. Wow, they really intermingle, don't they? Uh, it's almost like the whole ruling class was just in the same family. <laughs> like, one family just ruled all of Europe for yeah. a very long time. <laughs> um, and you know what? Whenever you trade daughters and sons back mm. and forth between nations, deliberately marrying each other off... You end up yeah. in such a way that even if it's not by blood, everybody is related. Yeah. <laughs> so you do have one family that essentially <laughs> rules the entire continent. And then gets in big fights with each other. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's the problem. Yeah, like, I mean, I feel like they, they try... Usually they try to do that to avoid conflict, don't they? Don't they, like... Yeah, so if here's you, my if you, daughter. Please, you, let's have peace. Yeah, but if you do that, you ignore, like, any sibling rivalries <laughs> or, like, anything that, like, any normal kid has growing up. You've just been overlooked it and been like, no, nah, they'll, they'll just get better if, with time. If we just make this whole thing, this whole family thing will work, like, <laughs> like it, it's it's Arrested Development is what it yeah. is. It's li like you could yeah. literally make an Arrested <laughs> Development historical <laughs> drama based on the, the idiocracy of it's making everybody who, you know, is ruling every country in Europe <laughs> in the same family. Like, that would yeah, just be... Yeah, if all of them were given their own countries to rule, yep. there would be pure chaos. <laughs> yeah. Like, anyway, uh, reading on, mostly at this point, to see who would be the Michael Bluth uh, of, of this family. Um, so, Nicholas and uh, Kaiser Wilhelm were, in turn... Second cousins once removed, as each descended from King Frederick William III of Prussia, as well as third cousins, as they were both great-great-grandsons of Tsar Paul I of Russia, in addition to being second cousins through descent from Louis II, Grand Duke of Hesse and by Rhine, and his wife, Wilhelmine of Baden, Nicholas and Alexandra, 
were also third cousins once removed, <laughs> as they were both descendants of King Frederick Wilhelm II of Prussia. Wow. In his childhood, Nicholas, his parents, and siblings made annual visits to the Danish royal palaces of Fredensborg and Bernstorff to visit his grandparents, the king and queen. The visits also served as family reunions, and as his mother's siblings would also come from England, Germany, and Greece with their respective families. It was there in 1883 that he had a flirtation with one of his English first cousins, <laughs> Princess Victoria. Wow. What? In 1873, Nicholas also accompanied his parents and younger brother, two-year-old George, on a two-month semi-official visit to England. In London, Nicholas and his family stayed at the Marlborough House as guests of his quote-unquote Uncle Bertie and quote-unquote Aunt Alex, (laughs) the Prince and Princesses of Wales, where he was spoiled by his uncle. Wow. There's a... Very delightful picture on the side of him as a child with his mother at a time when all children were dressed in dresses and shiny boots (laughs) and had curly hair. Long curly hair. (laughs) Yep. It kind of takes all the, I don't know what you call it, animosity out of uh, his persona. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking it kind of takes the animosity out of baby showers. (laughs) Like, think about how much easier it would be if you just, like, said, doesn't matter, all babies wear dresses. That's just it. (laughs) That's just it. They all have long, curly hair, and they all wear dresses. Like, there isn't a gender role. The the way that babies are meant to come into this world is just as, like, a identityless ball of clay and they mold themselves and whatever so we put them all in dresses we just let them white not pink or blue white dresses just put them in, there we go done <laughs> that's it I mean you can put a kid in a dress and they grow up to be Teddy Roosevelt or Nicholas II so yeah choose your battles I guess yeah. <laughs> that's what it comes down to um, maybe it's not such a great thing <laughs> yeah maybe not Maybe Teddy Roosevelt was the exception, not the rule. Yeah. Um, so, so what was that word, do you think? <laughs> do you want to try that? Uh, I'll give it a shot. All right, best of luck. Cesarevic. Or Cesarevich. I like it. No, I think that's, I think that's, I think that's spot on. All right. Uh, so on March 1881, following the assassination of his grandfather, Tsar... Alexander II, Nicholas became heir apparent upon his father's ascension as Alexander III. So, these people are... I don't, I don't understand the numbering system. Yeah, I think it's confusing because there's multiple different enumerations of different same first names between all of these countries. Cause, yeah, so you might have like, like an Alexander II of like... Germany, and you might have an Alexander II of Russia, and they may have happened 40, 50 years apart. Yeah, and then, like, this guy is a direct son of Alexander III. Right. But his name is Nicholas II. Yes. So who's Nicholas I? (laughs) (laughs) Some guy. (laughs) Sorry, Nicholas. I guess. I don't know. Some Nicholas in the past. Peter. The first Nicholas, his name is Peter. (laughs) (laughs) Like, how, how long can you go before having a second 
Because, like... Ask Pope John Paul. Because <laughs> I, I feel like a lot of people these days, it's just like your immediate son is the second mm-hmm. or never. I think with royalty, it's a, the, the rules are a little bit different. Because mm. with royalty, the rules on like who you can and can't marry are you must marry somebody in your family, not never mm. never romantically involve yourself with anybody in your family, which is the normal thing. <laughs> so like it's a it's a different ball game on a lot of I levels. Guess that's true. They, um, they can do whatever they want with numbers and yeah, because who's gonna stop them? They're the they rule everything. So, <laughs> <laughs> like that's that's the problem. <laughs> Um, but yeah, um, Nicholas and his other family members actually bore witness to Alexander II's death, having been present at the Winter Palace in St. Petersburg, where he was brought after the attack. Okay, so he was attacked in assass- tra- you know, assassination, and then he was still alive. They brought him to St. Petersburg, right? and then they witnessed him die after that. So, for security reasons, the new czar and his family relocated their primary residence to the Gachina Palace outside the city. How many palaces do these people have, too? Like, they just... Like, here... All of them. (laughs) We have the White House. In England, they have, you know, the... uh, They have Buckingham Palace. Yeah. So, but, like, these people seem to have, like... You know, all whole bunch of different palaces all over the place. It's like, ah, let's go to this one. Well, that's probably why. Um, that's probably why Lennon and Company went to all good Charlotte uh, lifestyles of the rich and the famous <laughs> era on them. But like they just uh, decided, you know, you have a few too many palaces here. Here, let's take let's take some of those and uh, 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 not occupy them. Uh, Redistribute the palaces amongst um, everybody uh, equally. Everybody in Russia now has two two square feet of a palace (laughs) they can use. Sure. Yep. (laughs) Oh, that's lovely. But in this Gatchina Palace, they uh, remained and only entered the capital for various ceremonial functions. Hmm. And on such occasions, Alexander III and his family occupied the nearby Anikov, Anikov Palace. Um, yeah. Uh, that Anikov. Anikov. Yeah, okay. I don't know why you would. Yeah. Why? It, why put a ch before a consonant? Like, it's just <laughs> that's just cruel. <laughs> that's just mean. <laughs> Who does that? There's uh, no reason for that. No. <laughs> Um, but yeah, in 1884, Nicholas's coming-of-age ceremony was held at the Winter Palace, where he pledged his loyalty to his father. And um. later that year, Nicholas's uncle, Grand Duke Sergei Alexandrovich, married Princess Elizabeth, daughter of Louis IV, Grand Duke of Hesse and Byron. Is Hesse and Byron what they used to call France in, like, royal- <laughs> royalty? Because they're talking about Louis here. Every time there's a Louis king, I think France. Is that wrong? Yeah, that, yeah Louis II was the Grand Duke of Hesse and Byron. Yeah. So what the heck is a Hesse and, and Byron? there's a Louise. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, it's Hesse. Germany. Is it? It's West Central Germany. Hesse and Byron. I guess that makes sense. The Rhine does run through Germany, doesn't it? The river? Yeah. So. It is, yeah. Okay. Okay. All right, that was just really throwing me off. Like, yeah, like uh, it's, it's such hard. a strange. 
it's hard to think about, but Germany wasn't Germany until yeah. basically World War One made Germany Germany. Before that, it was a bunch of like little tiny mm. kingdoms. That's yeah. where that's where Prussia so, came from too. I think. Did Germany have like one big ruler and then separate dukes overseeing small sections? There were multiple kingdoms. It was like okay. there was there was Hesse and Bayern, and then there was Prussia, and they were all what now is known as Germany, but right. they were uh, united. They were united kingdoms essentially. Uh, okay. And, and then okay. they Kaiser Wilhelm showed up, and that was kind of like how that started to boil down. But gotcha. Okay. So, uh, all right. Uh, a lot going on in this sentence here. Yeah. Okay, so, yeah. Um, all right. So, Nicholas's uncle. Yeah. Grand Duke Sergei married Princess Elizabeth, who was the daughter of this Louis IV, and his late wife, Princess Alice of the United Kingdom, who had died in 1878. And she was the granddaughter of Queen Victoria. Man, this gets confusing. Man, Queen see. Victoria, not to be confused with Princess Victoria. By the way, the Princess Elizabeth that was married off didn't become Queen Elizabeth, different Elizabeth. <laughs> it, it just, it's strange to me that a, the Princess of United Kingdom marries the a Duke of Germany, mm-hmm. produces a princess who marries a Russian Duke who is the I, uncle of a Tsar. It's just... <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, it's I would such a mess. To be the record keeper back then. Like it's it's impressive they kept it all together as long as they did. Like it's a good thing they had <laughs> wars and ultimately dethroned each other because this was getting pretty out of hand. Yeah, seriously. Now we're all neat and tidy. We got our, you know, all right. We got the set figures. We don't have to yeah. do all this craziness. You have to admit things there were just getting wildly out of wing. Yeah, it was about time that they stopped being king. <laughs> but at the wedding of this, you know, couple in St. Petersburg, the 17-year-old Cesarevich met with and admired the bride's youngest surviving sister, 12-year-old Princess Alex. Those feelings of admiration blossomed into love following her visit to St. Petersburg five years later in 1889. Well, at least she was 17 by the time, you know. Yeah. That's at least it's just basic. older than 12. Yeah. So better. <laughs> better. Uh, Alex had feelings for him in turn, but she was a devout Lutheran who refused to convert to Russian Orthodoxy, Whoa. eventually writing to Nicholas in 1893 to tell him that they could not marry. Huh. Whoa. Okay. So, uh, let's back up here. <laughs> Uh, she wrote to Nicholas saying they couldn't marry. Right. But earlier in the sentence, it was Cesarevich. Yeah, he is the Cesarevich. He's the okay. So Cesarevich is okay. He's like it's, it's like you know how we have kings and we have princes. Right. You know how nice and concise those words are. <laughs> so Russia very, was like very easy. Sars, Cesarevich. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> Uh, all right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Gotcha. So, eventually, in 1890, Nicholas 
along with his younger brother George and their cousin Prince George of Greece, set out on a world tour. Although Grand Duke George felt ill and was sent home... Oh, okay. So, Grand Duke George is not the Prince George. This is... Okay. It's very odd that they have two Georges here. Uh, Right. And was sent home partway (laughs) through the trip. Um, So, Nicholas visited Egypt, India, Singapore, and Bangkok. Received honors as a distinguished guest in each country. And in April 1891, while traveling through the city of Atsu, Japan, Nicholas was the victim of an assassination attempt. The incident cut his trip short, obviously, yet he was present at the ceremonies in Vladivostok, commemorating the beginning of the work on the Trans-Siberian Railway. In 1893, Nicholas traveled to London on behalf of his parents to present at the wedding of his cousin, George, Duke of York. Is this the same cousin? Who knows? No, it's not, because... Wow. Another George. He had a younger brother, George. He has a cousin, George. Yep. And there's a Prince George. Oh, this is another cousin, George. There's He has two George cousins. But which George is the George that became the George that would be a George we know? It's like George V, the one that was the king of uh, England. Yeah. Well, Any of them? Yeah, I don't know. Because Prince George of Greece probably, probably didn't become king of England. Probably. Who knows? But, um... Nope. This, nope, there's just a this, lot of Georges. This George Duke of York married Mary of Tech. Oh, George Duke of York. Yeah, that was the, that's the one. That's Is the that king the one? guy. Yeah. Okay. Um, so then Queen Victoria was struck by the physical resemblance between the two cousins, uh, I guess with Nicholas II, and their appearances confused some at the wedding. <laughs> During this time, Nicholas had an affair with St. Petersburg ballerina Matilde... Don't even worry about that. <laughs> Matilde. Yeah. Matilde yeah. with a bunch of K's Matilde K. <laughs> yep. Matilde... <laughs> If we can't get to Ben Stiller, then I'm going to make references to Ben Stiller. Dang it. I'll have compromises somewhere. Um, but yeah, despite being heir apparent to the throne, Nicholas's father failed to prepare him for his future role as czar. No kidding. He uh-huh. did not do a great job of it. Nope. Um, he attended meetings at, of the state council. However, as his father was only in his 40s, it was expected that it would be several years before Nicholas would take the throne. Sergei Witt, Russia's financial minister, saw things differently and suggested to the Tsar that Nicholas be appointed to the Siberian Railway Committee. Alexander argued that Nicholas was not mature enough to take on serious responsibilities, to which Witt replied that if he was not introduced to state affairs, Nicholas would never be ready to understand them. Alexander's assumptions about living a long life and having years to prepare Nicholas for becoming czar would be proven wrong, as by 1894, Alexander III was suffering from ill health. Uh, they always make the third one shorter. Because <laughs> that's by the time you get to the third one, you're like, oh, wow, yeah, I mean, we what, know, what's we know this franchise happens. anyway? <laughs> like, we, we understand the basic plot. Let's yeah, just... just Give, us, give it to us in a um, short chunk. Like you can make it really concise now. 
And so Alexan- Alexander III suffered from a short runtime. Um, mm. So in April of 1894, Nicholas joined his uncle Sergei and Aunt Elizabeth on a journey to Coburg, Germany for the wedding of Elizabeth's and Alex's brother, Ernest <laughs> Lewis, Grand Duke of Hesse. But not by Ryan. They lost the Rhine. <laughs> Rhine went away. No more Rhine. To their mutual cousin, Princess Victoria Melita of Saxe Coburg and Gotha. Who? <laughs> oh, that one again. All right. Uh, other, I'm just bouncing off to the articles where they have pictures of their faces on uh, briefly because, like, at this point. <laughs> and you know what's weird? It's like Cousin George, George V of England, and this guy, and this uh, Nicholas II, they all look very similar. They all have very similar mustaches. So oh, yeah, confusing. I wanted to see a picture. Who is this uh, King guy George the Fifth? He got confused. That they got confused at the wedding. Um, George and George. Was it? Was it George? Yeah, yeah. George and there's a Nicholas. Reason. They look very similar. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, yes, they do. They all look very similar. It's almost like they're all related. <laughs> <laughs> uh, other guests included Queen Victoria, Kaiser Wilhelm II. The Empress Frederick, Kaiser Wilhelm's mother, and Queen Victoria's eldest daughter, because why not? <laughs> uh, Nicholas's uncle, the Prince of Wales, and the bride's parents, the Duke and Duchess of Saxe Coburg and Gotha. Shortly after arriving in Coburg, Nicholas proposed to Alex, and she rejected his proposal on the grounds that she could not convert to orthodoxy. After the wedding, however, the Kaiser took her aside, telling her that it was her duty to marry Nicholas and convert, as did Elizabeth, who voluntarily converted to orthodoxy in 1892. After Nicholas proposed to Alex for a second time, uh, the two became officially engaged under which the, at which time there was absolutely nothing awkward at all <laughs> and she probably didn't even feel a little bit forced uh, oh uh, well the the, uh, the uh, engagement photo is clearly you know very she, comfortable situation oh yeah she looks thrilled yes yes she does <laughs> she, she really wants to be there and he's just Meanwhile, like, Nicholas yeah. is just super proud that he that he took all of his family aside and publicly embarrassed her to get her to agree to marrying him. Oh man, that is one photo, I tell you. That that that, that photo I think sums up their entire relationship. Yep. Like just looking at it, you're just kinda like, Oh, alright, I see what's really going on now. Okay. Um for their parts, uh, Nicholas's parents were reluctant to give the engagement their blessing as Alex had made poor impressions on her visits to Russia <laughs> and only gave their consent after it became clear that Tsar Alexander's health was about to, you know, expire. Queen Victoria had also been initially opposed to the match as, the, as while she had no objections against Nicholas personally, she just didn't like Russia. <laughs> Citation needed, but I feel like that's uh, yeah. I think that's probably probably what exactly what her opinion was. Yeah, just the way the world relations are now. It's just kind of like yeah, yes, uh huh. <laughs> England doesn't like Russia. Yep. If there's two figureheads that represent these countries, they <laughs> that's what's gonna happen. Uh, that summer, Nicholas traveled to England to visit both Alex and Queen Victoria. The visit coincided with the birth of the Duke and Duchess of York's first child, the future King Edward VIII. 
Along with being present at the christening, Nicholas and Alex were listed amongst the child's godparents. After several weeks in England, Nicholas returned home for the wedding of his sister, Xenia, to a cousin, Grand Duke Alexander Mikhailovich, also known as Sandro. There we go. <laughs> That's what you guys want to do. Like, come on, nicknames. Let's go. Let's do this. Yeah. I'll make things way easier for everybody. <laughs> By that autumn, Alexander III was dying uh, upon learning that he would at least be able to survive for a fortnight. The Tsar had Nicholas summon Alex to the Imperial Palace at Levadia. Alex arrived on the 22nd of October, and the Tsar insisted on receiving her in full uniform. He told his son on his deathbed to listen well to Witty. Uh, his most capable minister. Ten days later, Alexander III died at the age of 49, leaving 26-year-old Nicholas as emperor of Russia. Hmm. That evening, Nicholas was consecrated by his father's priest as Tsar Nicholas II. And the following day, Alex was received into the Russian Orthodox Church taking the name Alexandra Fyodorovna with the title of Grand Duchess and the style of Imperial Highness. <laughs> the style? Yeah. <laughs> taking the style of Imperial <laughs> Highness. I gotta say, every single one of these pictures is just pure gold. They, they It just like, like describes everything. <laughs> like he's just... Every single one of them... He's given the same like, like yeah machismo, face. Like, hell yeah. Sort of like he's yeah. like just staring straight in the camera, and he's like, yeah. And the first, and, one, the first one, she's like, well, maybe this won't be terrible. The second one, she's like, oh my god, I'm so tired, I made a huge mistake. And, and the all third the kids are like, just like, uh, why are we here? <laughs> yeah, none of the kids, none of the kids are all bored. They're looking off off camera. Like most of them, clearly, <laughs> even though they're old enough can't understand the concept of a camera <laughs> and that last the other one is her looking at him like are you serious right now yep and the baby with the blurred ghost face it's just yeah that's <laughs> they they definitely capture the uh, essence of this relationship's <laughs> dynamic that's yeah. for sure that's yep. That's quality stuff. Uh, Nicholas may have felt underprepared for the duties of the crown, asking his cousin and brother-in-law, Grand Duke Alexander, "What is going to happen to me and all of Russia?" <laughs> that's a that's a scary question if you're asking it, bud. You kind of got the keys to the car now, <laughs> um, and it's already running and it's already going down the road. And the person that was driving it is dead now. So get them out of the driver's seat. And get into the driver's seat and make sure this thing doesn't wreck. <laughs> Maybe a poor metaphor for 1890s. I don't know. Um, anyway, uh, though perhaps underprepared and unskilled, Nicholas was not entirely untrained for his duties as czar. Throughout his reign, Nicholas chose to maintain the conservative policies favored by his father, and while Alexander III had concentrated on the formulation of general policy, Nicholas devoted more attention to the details of administration. Leaving uh, Levadia on 7th of November, Tsar and Alexander's funeral procession, which included Nicholas's paternal aunt, Queen Olga of Greece, and the Prince and Princesses of Wales arrived in Moscow. After lying in state in the Kremlin, 
The body of the Tsar was taken to St. Petersburg, where the funeral was held on November 19th. Nicholas and Alex's wedding was originally scheduled for spring of 1895, but was moved forward at Nicholas's insistence, staggering under the weight of his new office, he had no intention of allowing the one person who gave him confidence to leave his side. Instead, Nicholas's wedding to Alex took place in November of 1894, uh, which was the birthday of the Dowager Empress Marie Fyodorovna, and court mourning could be slightly relaxed. Alexandra wore the traditional dress of Romanov brides and Nicholas a hussar's uniform. Nicholas and Alexandra, each holding a lit candle, faced the, faced the priest a few minutes before one in the afternoon they were married. Huh. You know, after getting into all this um, stuff about him marrying, kind of sheds a whole new light on the whole him and his entire family were executed thing. Yeah. Like, they really got the short end of the stick on this whole deal. The whole thing. Like, like he, she didn't want to marry him in the first place. Yep. His kids clearly were not happy about anything. No. Uh, and then, I don't know. I just, I wonder why they had to execute the family as well. I feel like... Maybe just... To put them out of their misery? I don't know. I, at this point, like, I... I feel like they probably would have been... They would have been pretty all right if you had just been like, you know what? You've had a, you've, you've had a terrible... Just, you know, go go do something else. Yeah. Go live better. <laughs> go do better now. Like, <laughs> I don't really know what else they would have said to him. Yeah. But uh, I feel like they should have at least been earned that chance. Like, clearly they weren't calling the shots. Yeah. Like, every photo is just like, can we leave? Yeah. Yo, sorry. Czar, Czar, can we go? Can, why are we here? Can we stop doing this? <laughs> like that's like the gist of every photo. Like so, if you just got him and took him out of the picture, I really don't think anybody else would have. But I mean, maybe that wasn't explicitly clear. Maybe we have the uh, benefit of being the third person omniscient in this narrative. True, but yeah, I mean, um, so I mean, like if you want to investigate the history of this guy any further, you can go visit the. Film Anastasia by Disney. <laughs> Get a pretty accurate picture right there. Yep. I mean, then Christopher Lloyd will show up and he'll be a magician. <laughs> Don't even worry about that part. Probably factually true. Probably. Just have fun but, with it. Enjoy it. We're done. We're out of here. Yeah. There you have it from Tor Svenberg to Nicholas II of Russia. Not a huge leap, but no. in, um, you know thematic terms we definitely made strides from film to monarchy yeah. <laughs> that's a that's a different topic yeah I, i'd say that's successfully successfully migrated on to something else yeah yeah so go ahead and visit facebook.com slash twc podcast and give us a like and follow on there and you know give us a shout out and message us and you know, interact and let us know what you're thinking about stuff. And go to iTunes and rate and review us. We have one great review, one bad review, and nothing in between. So anything can help. And you can also find new episodes on our website, 
twc.ericsrevue.com or anywhere on the internet where podcasts are found. And I would like to thank Louis Armstrong for our theme song and Al Jolson for our outro song. And thanks again for joining us. I was Eric. And I was John. And this was the Wikipedia Chronicles. Man, these... I'm telling you, these... Who, who are these guys? Are these the Von Habsburgs? Who who are these... What are these people's actual names? You know? <laughs> like, they can't just be Nicholas and, and, and Victoria and George all over the place. They have to have a last name. Yeah. Damn it. <laughs> who are they? <laughs> Because they just kept choosing their own names. Yeah. So what's the actual family again? There was a, there is a family name for them. Um, I forget what it is. Let's see. I'm gonna go uh, Victoria and try that. Full name: Nikolai Alexandrovich Romanov. So this was a Romanov, Romanov family. Yeah. And then you have Queen Victoria, who is. Alexandrina Victoria. Wait, her last name was Victoria? No. Let's try this again. See, full name Alexandrina Victoria. No. No, somebody's screwing with this. Yeah, there's no way this is. George Augustus Frederick was George the Fourth. George the Third was George William Frederick. King George the Fifth was George Frederick Ernest Albert. <laughs> so none of those are real names. Alright, that's enough of this. Oh, man, it's just it's too it's too no, much. No wonder world history is so difficult <laughs> when you have stuff like this going on just such a headache like legitimately the simplest thing that it should be <laughs> it should just be a bunch of cousins and first cousins and second cousins and sure it gets a little weird and sure you have a third cousin in there every <laughs> once in a while but the fact that you have all the same last name and to try to disguise that fact you all try to change your last names every time you have a new kid and every time they get married and and the fact and then, that you have eight different titles without having any nicknames and all using the same five first names <laughs> for each given gender makes it so unfathomably and unnecessarily difficult yeah. that you can't help but think that maybe they just went to war with each other because they totally forgot they were related and didn't <laughs> want to think about it anymore. <laughs> I'm just tired of all the names. I just don't want to go to another family reunion with like 90 people and this is it's just getting so, I don't want to change my name a fourth time. I'm tired of this. There's another George that shows up in this article. Don't worry about him. Don't go, somebody... find, don't go hunting for more Georges. Like I feel like we're getting tricked by a street magician. Like somebody put <laughs> like the king of england under a cup so christopher lloyd has come into this article yes <laughs> by way of being by way of being a poor street magician who's also rasputin but yeah oh my god i just oh, there's a link to gene mutation in here is that because they kind of push the boundaries on that
for a little while. Probably. Or... <laughs> says, as a granddaughter of Queen Victoria, Alexandra carried the same gene mutation that afflicted several of the major European royal houses, such as Prussia and Spain. Hemophilia. Oh. The House of Windsor. That's the one. Mm. That's the one I was thinking of. And it was originally a branch of the House of Saxe, Coburg, and Gotha. Gotha. Whatever. <laughs> house of Windsor, though. The ch- name of the House of Windsor was changed. Saxe, Coburg, and Gotha was that. Mm. But it was changed to Windsor in 1917 because of anti German sentiment. Which is ironic because they were related to the people in Germany they were fighting. Um, The houses of Saxe-Coburg and Gotha and Windsor have provided five British monarchs to date, including four kings and the present queen. So it's still going. This craziness isn't done. (laughs) They overthrew a a few of them, but the house of Windsor is still going. 